have a Bible, please open the book of Acts chapter 2 this evening. Acts chapter 2 tonight, Pentecost. What does it mean to us today? You know that Acts chapter 2 is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted chapters in all the Bible in America tonight. In Acts 1, we have the promise by Christ to fill us with his power and the command to go into all the world. In Acts 2, we have the empowerment, uh, the fulfillment of that promise, the empowerment by the Spirit. Now, until now, the Holy Spirit has never indwelt believers. In the Old Testament, many serve God out of love, but also out of fear of breaking God's laws. But from now on, believers will serve God out of love for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Old Testament believers for power, for service. Uh, David prayed, take not thine Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51 when he fell into sin. Uh, they did not have the sealing. They did not have the indwelling of the Spirit that we have. Now, Acts is a book of transition from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship, from Judaism to Christianity, from law to grace. There's transition from worship in the temple and the synagogues to worship in the New Testament church. And the church, the church, the word church literally means a called out, called out ones, ecclesia, a called out assembly. We are called out by God to gather together on Sundays so that we might scatter on Mondays all the way through Saturday, scattering, taking the word of God, what we've learned, the truth of our salvation, sharing it with others. Acts 2 is a great event in church history. Jesus started his church, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, the Bible says. Matthew 10, 2, uh, the disciples are now called apostles, and the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. But what's going to happen now in this chapter is what's going to be normative, what's going to be the new practice of worship that's going to continue for the next 2,000 years all the way down to this Sunday. Would you please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 2, and I'll begin reading here in verse 1, Acts 2.1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house, all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. May we pray. Our Father, I pray, I pray for an understanding of what happened at this moment in church history on the day of Pentecost. God, give us an understanding of what it means to us today. 
Help us not to feel that that we are second-class Christians because we don't have this experience of speaking in a foreign language or speaking in an ecstatic utterance or gibberish. Help us to know that being filled with the Spirit of God results in, in faith and obedience and submission and love and sharing of our faith. So God, I pray tonight, open our eyes. If, if we hold to a teaching that is contrary to your word, may we have a spiritual understanding. May you turn the spiritual lights on in our heart that we might understand what you did here, what you're doing today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Pentecost, we've all heard that word before. Pentecost was both a, a historic and a prophetic event that is important for all of us to understand. Millions across our country, millions across the world are confused by what happened here. So let's see if we can allow the Holy Spirit of God to help us understand His truth. The day of Pentecost did not happen because the disciples prayed and fasted. The writer Luke is pointing out the divine timetable of this event. What day is it? Passover. Passover. You remember the, the ten plagues of Egypt. Plague number ten was the death of the firstborn. The death angel passed over uh, the different homes where they had sprinkled the blood on the doorposts. And if they did that by faith, they lived. And all who rejected God's plan of salvation that didn't put the blood in the doorpost, the death angel took the life of the firstborn. Jews have celebrated that for 3,400 years. Now let me just show you a slide here of the Jewish feasts. Uh, there are seven Jewish feasts. Eight are listed here, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But, but God has a purpose for each one. You know, the book of Colossians chapter 2 says that these, these holy days have a meaning. They have a purpose. It wasn't just for Jewish worship, but it was a forecast. It was a shadow of things to come. And so we have the four in the spring, uh, we have the three in the fall, and then the fourth one listed here has to do with what's called the eighth-day celebration of tabernacles. And it's considered by some to be an independent celebration, some folded under and concluded as the seventh day or the eighth day of, of uh, tabernacles. Now, the spring holidays, there are four Jewish spring feast right in a row. You've got Passover, you've got unleavened bread, you've got the first fruits, and then you have Pentecost, and that brings us to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, uh, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And Pentecost also has the name Feast of Weeks. So what do they mean to us today? So keep in mind there are two kinds of prophecies. There's, there's the verbal prophecies, spoken or written, and then there are typical prophecies, a type or a picture. And so here we have a, a picture of the, the doorpost that would be covered in blood. Uh, Passover is a prophecy. You say, well, how is Passover a prophecy? I thought that's just a historical event. Well, the Passover feast pictured the death of Christ. The Passover lamb is a type of Christ. So when, when Jesus' cousin John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, what does he say? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away, what? The sin of the world. And so he is fulfilling the prophecy 
of the Passover. Passover is on the 14th of Nisan, which is equivalent to sometime for us late March or in April. Like Easter, it, it doesn't have the same date every, every year. And then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Unleavened Bread speaks of the total sinlessness of Jesus. Uh, it was observed on the 15th of Nisan uh, when Jesus was, was uh, uh, taken to the tomb having been taken down uh, from the cross late on the 14th. At the Passover, the Jews were to eat unleavened bread. It symbolized the, the putting away of sin and taking on God's righteousness. We are crucified with Christ, and we die with Him, and He was placed into the tomb. We we die with him, we die to our sin, we die to our selfishness. In baptism, we see that picture of the death, and then in the coming up out of the baptistry, the picture of the resurrection. Okay, now we come to the next one, and that is the priest waving a barley sheaf. This is the feast of first fruits. This is the, also called the, uh, the feast of barley, and this symbolizes the resurrection. This was, this is interesting. The feast was on the next day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. Now, the Sabbath is what day of the week? What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. So, Saturday. And so, the next day is what? That would be Sunday. The feast of first fruits then would be on the Sunday right after the Passover. The first fruits was a barley uh, first fruits. Uh, this feast reminds us that God is the owner of all of our wealth, just as Brother Tom just sang to us. Any success, any prosperity we enjoy is because of God. When we give our tithes, our offerings, we're not only supporting the work of God uh, and the gospel, but we are thanking God for His, His goodness to us. Every good thing we have, every good thing that came to us from God, no matter how hard we worked for it, it still came from God, James 1, 6, uh, 17. And so the farmer goes out to the field, and I remember as a teenager going out with my uncle, uh, and he, would, would, uh, he finally bought a, a combine, and he would, he would bring in his own grain. Uh, but I remember him going out, and, and he, would take, he would take the uh, barley, take the wheat, and he would take it and pull it off, and then he would rub it together and blow it and to see if it was ready to be harvested. The first fruits. The first fruit, you want to know if, it's, if the harvest is going to be coming in, if the harvest is, is ready. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the first fruits. In fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul said, Christ, the first fruit of them that slept. What does that symbolize? What's that a picture of? It symbolizes that because of Christ's resurrection, because it happened, so shall ours. Do you get that? That's why I love it when Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, ye shall live also. He was talking about his coming resurrection. And so when Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb, it's this picture of this first fruits. He's the first one. He's the pro, uh, prototokos, the most important one, but he guarantees our resurrection on Monday. On Monday, as we laid to rest Linda Zimmerman's earthly body, 
I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. And I say at the cemetery, this is not Linda's final resting place. She's only going to be here temporarily. The body appears to be asleep. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. She is consciously awake with the Lord in heaven, with memory, rejoicing, no pain. But the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And it occurred to me just at that moment, I've done, I've officiated close to 200 funerals at Limerick Memorial Gardens. I said, can you imagine? Can you imagine what it's going to be like right here? This is going to be a happening place, let me tell you. A lot of Christians buried at Limerick Memorial Gardens. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. We know that because there was a first fruits. The Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was crucified on the Passover. He rose on the first fruits, perfectly fulfilling prophecy. Well, now we come to this next feast of Pentecost, the enjoyment of the cross and the resurrection, the coming of the Spirit of God. You see, that Sunday, the beginning of first fruits, is also the start of the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks. Seven times seven is 49. And then what happens? God says the day after the seven weeks, and that brings us to the 50th day, Pentecost, Pentas 5, Pentagon, five-sided uh, uh, five uh, military building there in Washington, D.C., Leviticus 23, 15 to 16. Uh, you offer the Feast of Harvest. This is the Pentecost, and it, it celebrated the wheat harvest. But this is the time they bake the two loaves of wheat. So what does this all predict? It's very interesting. God, God has this master plan, and we just discover it little by little. So you got Passover, and they've been doing that for 3,400 years. That's, that's a prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross. You got the unleavened bread, and that is a prophecy of his burial. Uh, you have the feast of the first fruits, and that's a prophecy of his resurrection. And now you have Pentecost, which is a prophecy of the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. Numbers 28, 26. Now, Pentecost is the first fruits of the wheat harvest. One day soon, the Lord is going to gather in the rest of the harvest. He's going to gather the rest of the believers to heaven at his second coming. We are his harvest. Well, what's the proof of this? The, the proof that he's going to do this, do this is the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to Romans 8, 23. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, that is, that is the created earth is going to be renewed, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The Spirit of God living inside of you is the guarantee of your final inheritance, which is heaven. God has given you his spirit now. The spirit then is, is proof that we enjoy God's presence now. Because of Christ's resurrection, we have first fruits. Because Jesus is alive, 
we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. The Spirit came and dwelled in them, right, right? Perfectly fulfilling the type of the first fruit feast. And that's exactly what God's timetable says. They not only gathered the sheaf, but they made it into a loaf. Now, what do you think that symbolizes? The church is not a bunch of loosely held together people that, oh, I think I'll go this week. Oh, I think I'll do that. Oh, uh, no, there's a, the football game's on early this week. No, no, no. When you make bread, when you make bread, you take the wheat, you take the yeast, you, you bring all of the ingredients together, you blend it together into one common unit. And we are blended together in one common body, a loaf. And so the loaf is the picture of us being blended together. The first fruits of barley pictured the resurrection of Christ. There was no leaven because it pictures Christ, and the leaven means sin, and Christ had no sin. But the church in the Feast of Harvest of wheat has leaven because in the church there is sin. Oh, a perfect picture, exactly accurate. So when the Bible says the day of Pentecost is fully come, it happened right on God's timetable. Now, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they will say in their monthly magazine, Evangel, and I quote, we believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2, is given to believers who ask for it. All you got to do is ask for it. You've been saved for a couple of years. You need to ask for it. They miss the point of Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit. Jesus died at the right moment. Jesus rose at the right moment, and the Spirit came at the right moment, all in God's timetable, not in response to people praying for him to come, not people begging him to come, not coming down to the altar and weeping for him to come. He comes because we put our faith in Christ and we are born again into the Spirit of God. And so Pentecost is a prophecy. It pictures the day the church began to operate as it has operated for 2,000 years. Now, some like to call it the birthday of the church. I don't prefer to call it the birthday of the church because that's not in the Bible. Plus, I believe Jesus started his church, Matthew 16, 18. I'll build my church. Unless you want to say the church was conceived in the time of the ministry of Christ and born on the day of Pentecost. I can live with that kind of language. You good with that? Okay, good. Got a thumbs up from Brother Cooper on that one. Verse 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came, oh, oh, by the way, they were all with one accord in one place. One accord in one place. They're getting along because they have a mission. They have the same mission. Fulfill the Great Commission. Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They're gathered together in a house, a large enough house to hold 120 people. Maybe the same house where they had the Last Supper the night before Jesus died. Maybe the same house where Jesus appeared when they were behind locked doors. Probably the same one uh, as the night of the resurrection. Now notice verse 2, it says, It was not a wind, but it was a sound of a wind. The sound of a strong wind. The Holy Spirit came suddenly. God is at work. The same word for wind, pneuma, is the same word for what? Spirit. Same word for breath. 
The Holy Spirit is the breath of God. Can you imagine it? And I, I, I thought about it, but having a little tornado sound coming through the sound system here. But it's this strong sound of wind, but no one's hair is moving. Not because they were using extra hold hairspray, all right? Uh, it's the sound of the wind, but there was no actual wind that was, was happening. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then he indwells them. They are completely immersed. Again, some use the word baptized, indwelled, sealed. Uh, you have the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 5. Jesus said, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Ten days have passed from the 40th day, the, the ascension. Ten days later, you have the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is coming upon them. Once he comes upon them, this is normative. What that means is when you're saved, the Spirit of God comes inside your body. I truly believe that though you can't see him, the Spirit of God is inside your body. You are the temple of God. Temple means house of God. House of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? What you have of God, you're not your own. You're bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. Individual Christian, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? Let's, uh, I want you to see the difference here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, now it's the church. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, which temple ye are. So temple, house of God, my body, Chapter 3, temple, house of God, my church. He's telling Christians, don't you hurt my temple. Don't you hurt. In the same way, we're not supposed to hurt our bodies with drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and all kinds of things that would hurt our bodies. In the same way, we're not to hurt the church of God, the temple of God. God says, if you mess with my church, him shall God destroy. Strong language. The temple the house of God. The church is the house of God because God dwells in our midst as he does tonight. Verse 3. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Oh, what a sight to behold. They could see tongues of fire. Not real fire, but it appeared as fire. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, totally surrendered to His control. They're yielding to God's leading, God's will in their lives. Filled means to be dominated with. Someone who is in, in a rage is dominated by anger. Someone who is drunk is dominated by alcohol. Someone who is high out of their mind is dominated by drugs. Someone who is self-centered is dominated with selfishness. Christians were to be dominated, were to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what we want in our lives. So how do you know if you are dominated by the Spirit of God? That's not too hard to figure out, is it? What's the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, 
temperance or self-control. Evidence if you are dominated by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues. He said, oh, there it is, Pastor. If we're going to be filled with the Spirit, got to start speaking in tongues around here. We haven't done that yet. We need to get on to it. Well, let's understand exactly what happened. They spoke in foreign languages that they did not know. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Who controls your mouth? Well, that would be your heart. You have the choice to yield to God and let Him control your mouth, or you can be in control. Yielding to God happens moment by moment. One moment, Peter called Jesus Messiah, remember that? And the next moment, he's speaking for Satan and says, you're not going to go to the cross. I'll not let that happen to you. You say, am I supposed to do that all my life, just yielding and yielding and yielding? Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's a daily, momentary surrender. That's not a problem because you only live right now. That means I only have to do it right now. I have to yield right now to the Spirit of God. You don't live in the past. You don't live in the future. You only have this present moment. You're stuck right here, right now. Stop worrying about it. Verse 5. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. You say, how can that be? Well, hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the Roman Empire had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts from all around the Mediterranean Rim. And again, Jews were commanded to come to Jerusalem, the temple, three times a year. Now, here's the interpretation. We find it in verse 6. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Let me give the word to you, dialecto. Every man heard them speak in their own language, in their own dialect. The response to that is verse 7 and 8, and they are all amazed. These people from all over the Roman Empire are amazed. They marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? These men are from Galilee. These men are country bumpkins. They're from Hicksville. I mean, Galilee, that's up there in the boonies. They're nothing a bunch of uneducated farmers and fishermen. How can they do this? <clears throat> now look at verse 9 to 12. The foreign languages are listed. How hear we every man in our own tongue? Wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea, Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and parts of Libya, and Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Not the gospel, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? What meaneth this? This is either a miracle of God or this is a miracle of the devil. But it is a miracle. 
They spoke the wonderful works of God. Clearly, the devil is not inspiring them, giving them ability to do this. What happens when God works? Satan likes to oppose, persecute. Verse 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. They're mocking. You can't get drunk on new wine. It's not yet fermented. They're saying they're such babies that a little sip of grape juice makes them drunk. What are they, drunk on grape juice? Foolish mocking. Don't let the mockers upset you. Uh, they'll find out soon enough that they're wrong. Then Peter preached the gospel. Uh, we'll not read the whole sermon, verses 14 down to 38, but let's pick it up in verse 36. Look what he says. Therefore, let, us, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. You killed the Lord of glory, but we all killed him. He died for our sin. He died for me. He died for you. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty of our hell. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I find it fascinating that, that uh, just, just a few weeks ago, many of these same people are the ones who cried out as a bloody mob, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Jesus prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They weren't saved at that moment, but he had a forgiving heart to them. You see, you don't have to have someone come to you to be able to repent for you to be able to forgive them. If you're the offender, you should be the one going seeking forgiveness. If you are the offended, you should be the one that is willing to forgive. And Jesus, when he was crucified, was the one who was hurt, the one who was offended, and he's praying for their forgiveness. Now you fast forward. Now his prayer is being answered. God's answering his prayer. And they're saying, what shall we do? How can we be saved? We made a mistake back there. We cried for his blood. And so we have the answer, verse 38. Peter said unto them, repent. Repent. Repent means do a U-turn. You're, you're walking down the road this way and you repent. You do a U-turn. You don't do a 360 because then you'd be doing the same way. You do a 180. Yeah. And, and so you turn uh, from idols to serve the living and true God, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Uh, Acts 20, uh, we find the apostle Paul, uh, as he's preaching, he's saying, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It's faith and repentance. Uh, John never mentions repentance. He just talks about belief. But you find Jesus and Peter and Paul, they use the word repentance when referring to salvation. Repent, turn to God, turn away from your sin. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. When you hear these hip and cool preachers on the radio, when you hear the comedians mocking the preaching of repentance, it makes my stomach turn because they're mocking Jesus. 
It's one thing when the late-night talk show hosts mock the preaching of repentance. I expect that. They're lost. They're blind. They're on the broad road. But when you hear supposedly gospel-preaching preachers mocking repentance, are they gospel-preaching preachers if they're mocking repentance? Now, we have a little bit of a of a challenge here. Notice Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, that ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so people ask, oh, 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 is this, does this mean you got to be baptized to go to heaven? Well, that answer is, is found many times over and over again in the scriptures. No, you don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. The thief on the cross said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me. Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Was he baptized? No. Did he go to heaven? Yes. Given the opportunity, he would have gotten baptized in obedience, but it would not wash away his sins. So what is it teaching? Or what is, what is the reconciliation here? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Jews had all kinds of washings. Why would he add and be baptized? Does baptism wash away sins? No, no, no. Jews had the washings. He is pointing out that when they get baptized, it is to be in the name of Jesus Christ. He is saying, when you get saved, make your faith public. Let everyone know you are now following Jesus, the Messiah and Savior. The Bible does not teach you are saved by baptism. The verse simply means that baptism is the next step. You get saved, you get baptized. Now, the word for, the word for is the Greek word ice, E-I-S, which means in order that. So let me explain it this way. Peter says, repent, that is get saved, and then be baptized in the name of Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins, because your sins have been forgiven. Notice the gift of the Holy Spirit. His coming is free. You don't earn him with works. You don't earn him with sacraments. You don't earn him with baptism. So what do they do next? Verse 41. That they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. It's amazing. It's amazing. You, you follow. Saved, baptized, Added added to what? Verse 47 says, The Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. And so that's why we receive members. When they get saved, they get baptized, they become part of our church family. The word membership is not found in the Bible, but they became part of something. They were added to what? Added to the 120. So the church grew from 120 to 3,120. I've read articles where they say, oh, churches, they shouldn't, they shouldn't count. They shouldn't count to see how many people they have. Well, they did it here. We're told they had 120, then they had 3,000, then they had 5,000. And so they had ushers. They were counting. They kept records. They did things decently in order. Saved, baptized, added to the church. Now, verse 42, we have the four things that continue to this day. They continued steadfastly. The apostles' doctrine, that's the teaching. The fellowship, that's a bunch of fellows in the same ship. I mean, we're in this thing together. We're sharing. And then we have the breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. We'll do that on June 6th. And in prayers. 
The Bible is so practical, so helpful, so guiding. If you want your worship to please God, follow the Bible. And we are doing that as a New Testament church exactly as we find it here in Scriptures. And so what does Pentecost mean to us today? Just a couple quick things and we'll close. Uh, Jesus keeps his promises. He promised to send the Comforter, John 14, 26, 15, 26. He sent him. He continues to send him to every time someone is saved, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside a heart and soul. Wasn't that wonderful to hear Ebony's testimony this morning? She said, I'm crying, I'm crying, I'm crying. And then I prayed with, with Mrs. Wendell and I stopped crying. Just knew, I knew God was with me. God gave me this peace. And now she's getting baptized. Jesus keeps his promises. A promise, we'll go to the next slide, the promise of eternal reward, the promise to meet our needs, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of his indwelling presence, the promise of his blessings, the promise of new covenant, the promise of, of the abundant life, the promise of eternal life, the promise of security, the promise of peace, the promise of heaven, the promise of his return, the promise of comfort, the promise of answered prayer. Pentecost means he keeps his promises. Number two, it means the Holy Spirit is working today. The Holy Spirit is working today. The conviction, the convicting of, of lost people of their sin and then the, the saving, regeneration means to be born again. When the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God convicts you and you believe the Spirit comes in, you are, you are born anew. You're made brand new. When people say, well, I, I've always been a Christian. No you, no, you haven't been always been a Christian. Well, it was a process. It might be a process of conviction and understanding, but you're born, you have a birthday and you have a spiritual birthday. It's a moment in time the Spirit of God comes upon you. And then sanctifying the saved. The Spirit of God continues to help us to grow spiritually. And then the church is vital to Christians. What does Pentecost mean to us? The church is vital to Christians. The church is, it's been said, immortal. From the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, God had in his mind the church. And he promised that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So when Jesus came into the world, he started his church. The theme of Pentecost, believe it or not, is this, it, it, it is this communication. It's really a, a shame. The whole idea of speaking in tongues has become confusing today. When you read Acts 2, the truth that comes to the service is that God gave the gift of tongues to the apostles so that they could be understood by everyone. They had a problem with communication because people had come from long distances, different lands, different nations. And when you read the long list of nations, you realize that a language barrier, barrier existed. And so God wanted each of them to hear the message in his own language. He performed a miracle, and he gave the apostles the gift of tongues so they could communicate his message. The mission of the church today is the same. Communicate his message. If God were giving the same gift today, then missionaries would not have to go to language school, right? Wouldn't it be great? I'm going to go to Greece. I'm going to go to Mali. I'm going to go to, uh, to South America. I'm going to go to China. Learn Mandarin. 
They wouldn't need to go to language school, but guess what? Even, <laughs> even charismatic and Pentecostal missionaries, guess what they have to do? <laughs> they go to language school too. So I thought they spoke in tongues. Well, they're speaking something different, but it's not the tongues of Acts chapter 2. We translate the scriptures into different languages. We're trying to win converts from different countries. And to do that, they need to hear it in their own language. You know, the mission has never changed. The moment you become a Christian, the moment I became a Christian, God commissions us to share this simple message with our little section of the world. Can't you see the early Christians after, the first, after they first hear the good news about Jesus? On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 new converts. All of them know that they are guilty and they have crucified Christ with their sins, but now they've repented of their sins. The Spirit of God comes upon them and they just keep telling other people and then 5,000 get saved and then multitudes get saved and then persecution comes and they just spread around Judea and Samaria and they spread into Asia Minor, they spread into Europe all the way to Collegeville, Pennsylvania. The church is vital for Christians. I'm so glad that COVID did not kill the church. COVID did not kill the church. I'm so glad that we discovered that the building is not the church. If we gather in an outdoor parking lot service, that's a church. We gather in the Family Life Center, a.k.a. Family Life Worship Center, it's a church. If we gather, gather in the old auditorium, which has now been renamed to the worship center, it's a church. It's where we meet. It's where we meet. I'll, I'll, I'll just want to close with, with the uh, testimony of Jody's dad coming to Christ. Born in, in Mexico to Canadian German parents. Came back to Canada, the family did when he was 10. He spoke no English. Put in public school, learned English. He spoke German fluently. Meets Jody's mom in the um, fields harvesting crops. Can't tell you what kind of crops. Uh, it was legal, but it was just another kind of crop. And um, they married, and their church didn't preach the gospel. Didn't preach the gospel. They talked about it. They never invited someone to come to Christ, and they did correspondence studies. They made 100 seeking and searching. But the church brought in an evangelical Mennonite evangelist, and he held meetings. He came by and he, he knocked on the door and Jody was about eight months old, sleeping in the crib. Mrs. Friesen was out. John Friesen let this man come in and he said, are you, are you saved? Do you know if you, went, if you died, if you go to heaven? He said, I, I, I don't know, but I'm trying to find out. We're doing all these studies. And he opened the Bible and he showed him that God loves him and Jesus died for him and that he was a sinner and he knew that and, and he got saved. And he left. An hour later, Mary Friesen came home. An hour later. And she looked at him. 
And she asked, John, what happened to you? John, what happened to you? He said, Mary, I found what we've been looking for. And he opened the Bible, and he showed the same Bible verses to his wife, Mary, his new bride. They've been married about a year. No, no, year and a half. Sorry, I want to make sure. <laughs> married about a year and a half. And she got saved. And because of that, my wife got to grow up in a Christian home where mom and dad love God. And he continues to share his faith to this day. How long was he saved before he led his first convert to Christ? One hour. One hour. And so if you are saved and you have the Spirit of God, you have a story to tell. There's no reason that anybody that you know doesn't know that you're a Christian. Speak up. Kindly. Boldly. Now's the time. Lord, we love you tonight. We thank you for this day of Pentecost, this historical moment in the life of the church where, where now we know for certain the Spirit of God lives inside of us the moment we are saved. We are empowered to share our faith. I pray tonight that we would give ourselves to you to let you have your way in our lives. To know that it's not just us living out our faith on our own, but we do it we do it in the context of a church, a local body, a church family. And like those ingredients of the bread are, are brought together with the wheat and the yeast, yes, we know that we have sin in our hearts, but we come to you and we seek forgiveness and we find fresh cleansing, fresh oil, fresh anointing, fresh mercy. And as we pray, we are empowered to share your good news. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I ask you tonight, are you surrendered? Are you surrendered to God? Are you surrendered to God's ways? God's will? Surrendered to God's plan for your life, and it might not be your plan, to adjust your plan to his plan. Oh, we have but one life. Let's use it for Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can open your word and hear your truth. Thank you for the believers of one accord in Acts 2. Help us to be able to be committed to your great commission. In Jesus' name, I... If you have a Bible, please open to John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. Last week we saw that, that worshiping God is giving, not getting. You know, about 50 years ago, the easy believism contemporary church movement, they came with a church growth recommendation. When coming to church, give them what they want. Uh, the commands of the Word of God were largely ignored by many churches, resulting in a, in a lazy, Laodicean type of Christianity across America. Well, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus gave a message to the pastor for that church in Laodicea. What did he say? We find it in Revelation 3.15. I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor what? Nor hot. Because thou art lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee, what? Out of thy, my mouth. You know, every generation, 
Every generation faces the temptation of becoming a Laodicean Christian. I mean, the Laodicean spirit is more contagious than the COVID virus. So beware, beware. Laodicean Christians, what they do is they, they focus on the wrong things. And if you focus on the wrong things, then you'll begin to backslide. So how do we avoid backsliding away from Christ? The answer is worship. Worship God. Worship Jesus Christ. You see, God hates false worship. And we saw that in the first of the two Ten Commandments. Don't have any other gods. Number two, don't make any graven images and bow down to them. There in your notes, false worship is worshiping the wrong God. A false worship is worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. False worship is worshiping the right God, but without faith, without obedience, without passion. So if you are distracted in your mind during the hour of collective worship, then, then your worship is, well, it's wood, hay, and stubble. So what kind of distractions? I mean, right now, right now, if you're at home, if you're here, what kind of distractions can pull your heart and mind away from worshiping God? Well, it could be social media. You say, how do you know? Because some people like to post on Facebook during the church service, all right? <laughs> For a teenager, it might be whispering to your friends. It might be texting. Uh, it could be thinking of petty things that irritate you. Now, if you're worshiping at home, you have a lot of distractions there, so you're going to have to be extra focused on worshiping God. So what is true worship? Well, worship, it is any true expression of exalting God and His glory for who He is and for what He has done. That's worship. Last week in Psalm 96, we saw several different examples of what worship is. Worship is singing. Worship is giving glory to God for salvation. Worship is when we share our faith with unbelievers. Worship is exalting God's name. Worship is honoring God as our creator. Worship is giving our offerings. Worship is being overwhelmed at the glory and the majesty of God. You're just, just in awe of God. Would you stand with me now to John chapter 4? And I want to... I want you to see a familiar encounter between Jesus and one woman who he wants her to become a worshiper of God. John chapter 4, we pick up the scene in Samaria outside a little town called Sychar. The disciples are in the town uh, buying food and goods. And so we're going to pick up the scene with Jesus in a conversation with the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, the, woman, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, 
the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can open the word of God and understand what you expect, what pleases you for true worship. So God, I pray that you will remove the distractions from our hearts and minds, that we will focus upon the message from the word of God, and that you will transform us into becoming true worshipers that please you by how we live, how we talk, how we serve, how we love. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, do, you, do you think Jesus was a tradition breaker? What do you think? Yes. Think is it true? You think he would come upon something and it was a tradition and he said, no, no, I don't think we should follow that one. Was he a tradition breaker? Absolutely. In John chapter 4, Jesus broke the well-respected traditions of the Pharisees. He broke the traditions of many of the Jews in general. So what did he do in John chapter 4? He spoke to an immoral Samaritan woman in public. When Jesus did this, he broke four traditional barriers. And so follow along, watch with me here. Number one, Jesus broke the racial barrier. He broke the racial barrier. Even the Samaritan woman reacted in verse 9. She said, you're, you're a Jew, and, and I'm a Samaritan, and you're talking to me? You're asking me for a drink? You know, racial prejudice ran deep between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's no room for prejudice in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no room for prejudice in society. Jesus broke, he broke that traditional barrier. Number two, he broke the gender barrier. This is what first shocked the disciples. You see, when they turned from their shopping trip in verse 27, uh, the Bible says they marveled. They were surprised. They couldn't believe it. Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, he is talking to a woman in public. We find that women played important roles in the ministry of Jesus Christ. As you read the Gospels, you find that some wealthy women actually helped finance Jesus' ministry. They were a part of his ministry. Thirdly, Jesus broke the religious barrier. The Samaritan religion was a, a corrupted mix of Judaism, which was good, and paganism, which was bad, and they put it together, and it came out a Samaritan religion. In fact, it was so awful that when Jews would travel from, from Galilee in the north and they would go to Jerusalem in the south three times a year, they would walk around Samaria because they didn't want to be a part of it. When they would go home, uh, they would again go around Samaria. Rather than take the shortcut to go through Samaria, they avoided it. Jesus, he broke the religious barrier. Do you know that on any Sunday morning, 
people will walk into these doors for the first time. They'll come into our services and they will believe all manner of false teachings. You say, how do you know? Because they come to me and they tell me what they believe. (laughs) That's not in the Bible. That's really crazy stuff. But you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to speak the truth in love. We're supposed to take time to allow God to open their spiritual eyes, to allow God to open their spiritual ears. We're supposed to be patient with them as we share the truth from God's Word. One more, Jesus broke the moral barrier, the moral barrier. When she told Jesus, I have no husband, he said, yeah, you're right, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband, verse 17 and 18. So she told the truth. Well, she told a half-truth, right? She told a half-truth. And that's what people do. They, they, like, they tell half a truth, but that's not the whole truth. And, and that's why the Bible says that we need to hear the whole matter. We need to hear the whole matter. So Jesus, he acknowledges that what she said was partially true, but he points out the truth. And so this immoral woman... Her immorality does not stop Jesus from talking to her. He didn't avoid her because of her immorality. He came to her. Remember, he came to seek and to save that which was what? That's what was lost. So this is the kind of woman that Jesus came into the world for. He broke the moral barrier. Now, God is going to use this woman to be an evangelist to the entire town of Sychar. Her past sin did not disqualify her from present ministry. If it were not for God's grace, no one would be qualified to serve Christ. No matter how bad I fail today, God's mercy is new every morning. In your notes, Lamentations 3, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You know that, that, that wonderful hymn that we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness? The context of it is right here. The context is that no matter how bad your past, God's grace is greater. If God wanted to, when you sin, he could, he could zap you and you'd be gone. But his love and his mercy and his compassion is so greater than your sin. And when you mess up really bad, all you got to think of is tomorrow's coming. And when the sun comes up, the mercy of God is new. The mercy of God is new every morning. Notice what Pastor James Bradford said about this. How did Jesus overcome these barriers? He entered her world and touched her heart. Jesus exposed the woman's secrets prophetically, but he handled her heart tenderly. Jesus loved someone incredibly different from himself. And in doing so, he he left her transformed, not demeaned. That's love. That's care. By speaking kindly to her, Jesus showed her love. Now he is going to reveal that he is the Messiah and he is going to show her truth. Look with me at verse 22. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. Uh, We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. Jesus defines two indispensable elements of worship. What are they? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Now, we've been talking about love and truth. Love does not ignore truth, and truth does not ignore love. One of the hardest things I do every day is this learning to balance love and truth. Uh, we all know that it's hard at home, okay? If you're married, if you have kids, right? it's going to be hard balancing this love and truth. But at work or with friends or in sharing your faith, you're talking to someone and maybe they're relative, maybe it's a coworker, and like how much love, how much truth, trying to get this balance. It can even be hard at church. I mean, it's like, it's like we need God's help every day, <laughs> How about it? We need God's help every day, especially to balance this love and this truth. So let me give you a, a, one sample. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say, let's say some junior high kids ride the bus first time. One of our Samaria ministries, right? Right? And uh, this happens all the time. Now, they, they come in. Uh, they do pretty well in small groups in Sunday school, but then they come to the service. Let's say, they, let's say they come to this service and they've never been in a church service in their life. The closest thing they've ever been to in a crowd would be like maybe a school assembly, maybe a parade, uh, maybe attending a sports game in the stands. So they've never, never been to a church before, so what do they do? Well, well they talk and and they ask questions, and they're disruptive, and let's say you're sitting near them. At that moment, you have a choice. You can give them love, or you can give them truth. I mean, they're disrupting, and so let's say you give them truth, and you stand up, and you turn around and say, hey, 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 sit down back there. Uh, hey, put a lid on it. Can't you see the pastor's preaching? Show a little respect. Sit down, be quiet. Truth, truth. But then there's love, love. Let's say you, you get up quietly and you go back and you, you sit beside them and you, you whisper something like, hey, hey, I know you have some questions, but let's, let's let the, the pastor finish that great sermon. By the way, that is a great sermon. I mean, I, this is one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. Uh, but when he's done with the sermon, that great sermon, then, you know, we'll, we'll talk. And, and so let's, let's just kind of uh, be quiet for right now. Love. You see, that's what Pastor Matt, that's what Nikki, Mrs. Colton, that's what our loving youth leaders, they do. Balancing. Love and truth, you see it with Jesus, and we all, we all need to do it. So our Samaria ministries, our bus ministry, our bus ministry, our deaf ministry. You, you, you don't realize this, but, but when our deaf interpreters are signing to the deaf ministry, by the way, it's growing, it's really cool. If you were, if you were to, to casually just walk between that, that would be like the sound guy turning off the microphone, right? Deaf ministry bus ministry. Uh, Genesis Pregnancy uh, is now called the Genesis Women's Clinic. Uh, then we have the inner city ministries, and we have the, um, uh, the women's crisis ministries, the prison ministry. We have these, these ministries that there are Samaria. God says, speak the truth in love in Ephesians 4.15. And because Jesus speaks truth in love, the power of God saves this woman and she is forgiven she becomes a bold witness for christ and so i i know you've seen it before but it's very appropriate to show it at this time i'd like you to see this scene from the chosen 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah, exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind. That, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> <laughs> Hey, wait! <laughs>
You're what, dear? You forgot your, um... Foxy, you're mad. You told me everything I ever did! I've only seen the clip about 10 times, but every time my, my eyes uh, f- uh, fill with tears, that, what, what, what Jesus did for her, that's what he did for us. That's what he did for us. And, and that same kind of gratitude and love and zeal and wanting to share with other people, that, that's what we should have in our hearts because, because he saved us and he forgave us and we're on our way to heaven. We are true worshipers of the living God. Notice what what he says in verse 23. Watch with me. End of verse 23. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is seeking you to worship him. He is seeking worshipers now. He's seeking worshipers today. But you say, but how, how, how do we worship a God we cannot see? How do we worship a God that's invisible? How? We do it by faith by faith oh but we have a lot of evidence to back up our faith i was thinking just a couple of things came to my mind that that backs up our faith and the first one is the created world romans chapter 1 verse 19 and 20 we have the evidence of a powerful intelligent being because of the majestic and masterful world that declares his glory every sunrise and every sunset i don't know what it is about the spring and and some around Valley Forge Baptist, but we're, we're, we're just uh, up on a hill just enough. We see the most glorious sunsets, most glorious sunsets. And every sunset and every sunrise is shouting the glory of God, the glory of the Creator. It's really cool. Another good reason to come to church on Sunday night, and then you can, on the way out, you can see that sunset and enjoy it. The created world is an evidence of our faith. The guilty conscience the guilty conscience, Romans 2, 14 and 15. We all know we need to be forgiven because we've all sinned. And God forgives our sin. The power of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I saw the undeniable power of God when I was 15, when God transformed my dad from spiritual death to spiritual life. Made him a different person. And then he did the same thing for me. And then the Word of God. The accuracy of the Bible is confirmed by history. The accuracy of the Bible is confirmed by prophecy. The accuracy of the Bible is confirmed by archaeology. I mean, this book is true from cover to cover. Now, there are two key elements of worship we find here. Notice with me John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the word spirit uh, there in the second part, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's our human spirit. We are to worship with all of our heart, with all of our being, with all of, of the passion of our soul, without distraction. I mean, we're all in. Now, there are two extremes you have to be aware of. One extreme, and you'll see it on TV. You'll see on TV people in church services where they they begin to run around and holler and make a ruckus and and do all kinds of antics. And and the, the, the attention goes off of God, and it goes on the worshiper. That's an extreme. But then the pendulum swings the other way. The other extreme is to be so checked out. Oh, ho-hum, it's another service. Oh, what time is it? Is it done yet? Is the service going to be as long this week as it was last week? 
Oh, I'm not getting anything out of the message. Two extremes. No, no. Our human spirit, all of our being, all of our heart, with all of our passion. If your whole heart is not in your singing, if your whole heart is not in your giving and loving and serving and rejoicing in God's victories in the lives of others, then your worship is, well, it's, it's shallow. It's weak. It may even be rejected by God. So spirit and truth. Notice the truth. The truth is God's truth, the Word of God. So 40, 40 years ago this month, I graduated from Bible college. A week later, 40 years ago, I entered full-time ministry. Been in the ministry three years as an intern, 37 years as a pastor. I have a lot of books. I read a lot. When you're going into the ministry, people like to give you a lot of books. I got a lot of books. But you know, in these 40 years, I've only ever taken one book into the pulpit. One book. God's book, the Word of God, God's truth. We worship according to spirit and truth. We need both. We need both. Now, there are two aspects of this biblical worship. First is private worship, then the public worship. Now, the private worship occurs on two levels. You want to be a true worshiper of God. It begins with, with, with everything we do is to honor God. We literally honor God and worship God everywhere all the time. Uh, for many years, we've taken our teenagers to the Wilds Christian Camp. And they gather outside the dining hall, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They have a prayer time, but before they eat, they say a verse. Here it is. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all what? To the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You don't say, you don't eat, all right? So everything we do all the time, 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, it's, it's who we are. It's worship. But it's also a special event. It's a special daily event. You want to worship God, you take time to focus on the Lord, to have an intimate daily walk with God. How do you do that? It's a conversation. So I, when I read my Bible, God's talking to me. When I pray to God, I'm talking to God. It's a conversation. It's a special daily event where you take time to focus upon God. It is in these times I find encouragement, I find forgiveness, I find direction, I find power. It is in these moments God, He adjusts our attitude, doesn't He? Uh, you, you were thinking one way, but now you think a different way. It's in these times that God floods our soul with love, uh, with forgiveness for those who wrong us. If you, if you used to do this regularly and you've stopped, may I encourage you today? Return to the Lord. Experience God as you worship in a daily God and I time, a quiet time. Take time to pray the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Personalize as you read it. Just turn it into a prayer and pray out loud. And then when you find something, share it. Share it with a friend. Share it with a family member. Share it on social media. In fact, I like to do that right now. Reading uh, Nehemiah yesterday, listen to this wonderful verse, Nehemiah 9, 6. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, 
and thou preservest them all. Now listen, listen. And the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Is that a cool verse? God made everything, heavens and earth and everything in the sea, and everything worships God. That's you and I. And so you, 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 God speaks to your heart. You see something, and a kind of a light goes on, and, and that touches you, and you share it with a friend, family, social media. Just put it out there, your private worship. But then there's public worship. Public worship. Like-minded Christians gather together on a Sunday, face-to-face, in person, to express God's glory, God's worthiness, God's majesty. How do we do that? We do it when we sing. We do it when we pray. We read His Word. We obey His commands. We partake of the Lord's table. We'll do that June 6th. We comfort one another. We provoke one another to love and good works. And we celebrate. Every Sunday is a celebration. You know what we're celebrating? He lives. He lives. Jesus arose from the dead. Resurrection Sunday. There's a great quote in there from uh, Pastor Gary Reimers. Uh, basically, what he says is, is uh, the people are not the audience. They are the worshipers. That involves active participation, not passive observation. Those up front are not the performers. They are the prompters who guide the worshipers. Here it is. God is the audience. God is the audience that everyone should be trying to please. His approval means everything because giving him glory is the very purpose of worship. Last week I said that, um, parents, we've been asking the wrong question. What did you get out of church today? The right question is, what did God get out of your worship today? Worship is giving, not getting. So do we... Call this gathering place an auditorium or a worship center. I know it's just a preference, but after what we are learning together, it seems to be more appropriate to go with worship center. Now, can you worship God without knowing Him? The Bible teaches that, that my daily walk with God, my relationship with God, that's, that's where this worship occurs, under the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask this question, do you have a relationship with God? Are you a genuine Christian? Was there ever a time in your life that you were so overwhelmed with your sin that you said, I, I, I've got to come to God. I've got to be forgiven. I've got to be delivered from this guilt of my past. Can you say today, I know that I'm saved. I know that heaven is my home because I am a true and genuine follower of Jesus Christ. If not, today, Today, you can be born again into the family of God. May we pray together. Father, thank you for this time, this time together, time to gather together to worship you. Now, Lord, I pray that if there be one that, that knows not Christ as Savior, draw them to yourself today. Heads about, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor Wendell, I believe that I am a true worshiper of God, I am a Christian. I am a true and committed follower of Christ. There was a time in my life God touched my heart. You might not know the, the date, but you know that God has come into your life because there was a moment you put your faith and trust in Christ alone. You believe that he died for you and rose again. You're trusting nothing else, not baptism, not sacraments, not good works, not being kind or nice, Christ alone. If that's you, would you raise your hand all over this congregation today? God bless you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You say, Pastor, I, you know, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. 
but I'm not sure. I, I don't have this confidence. My, my faith hasn't gone from my head to my heart, but today I want to make the commitment to receive Christ as my Savior. It's not about getting baptized. It's not about joining the church. It's about you calling upon God, you becoming a true worshiper as you saw with the woman at the well. You say, I'd like to do that today. I believe God is tugging on my heart. I want to say yes and receive Christ. Would you simply raise your hand, hold it up high for a moment. I want to pray with you today, Pastor. I want to receive Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Anyone at all? One did in the early service. How about you? I've never been saved. I want to be saved today. Anyone at all? Heads about, eyes are closed. Would you, Christian, would you send your, surrender your heart? Would you ask God to help you become a true worshiper of God as Dan sings our invitation song? All to Jesus I surrender All to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him In His presence daily Father, we come to you today. We're grateful for all that you've done for us. God, teach us, show us how our worship can be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hebrews 11. You've probably heard the phrase, go west, young man, go west. There's controversy over who used the phrase first in print, but there's no question over the purpose. It was coined in the 1800s when America was attempting to settle the Western territories, and many pioneers answered the call. They packed all their belongings in a covered wagon and headed out west. Many were looking for land. Some were looking for gold. But all of them went with bravery. They had to brave the Indians, the elements, the wild animals. <laughs> Go west, young man, sounds like a laudatory calling, doesn't it? But it couldn't have been easy. Personally, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have made it. I don't know that I even would have wanted to do it. Uh, I've never been a fan of roughing it. You know, I like my comfort. <laughs> I don't really like to, I'm not going to want to sleep in a covered wagon or travel in one. Well, tonight I want to talk about a man who heard the call to go west long before there was ever a United States or a Western territory to be settled. His name was Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, our text is verses 8 to 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, 
dwelling in tabernacles, tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, I don't know if it was hard for Abraham to take up a nomadic life or if he had already been living and moving about in tents before God called him. I'm not really sure. But I do know that God called Abraham to a life of faith, and Abraham demonstrated his faith in obedience, even when it was hard. And that's what we need to learn tonight, folks, as we come to Abraham and as we look at this passage of Scripture. Faith obeys God even when it's hard. Faith obeys God even when it's hard. And the life of Abraham teaches me from this passage of Scripture particularly that faith obeys particularly in two things when it's not hard, when it does not understand and when the reward is slow in coming. Let's look at the first of those from verse 8. Faith obeys God when it does not understand. The scripture says, He went out not knowing whither he went. The word knowing there is not the usual word uh, for... Actually, there's two different words in the New Testament for know, and it's not either one of those usual words. This is a different word. It means to put one's attention on or to fix one's thoughts on, but it especially carries the idea of understanding. Understanding. And so when the scripture says that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, it does not necessarily mean that he didn't know where he was going, as in the destination, although that is possible, but that he didn't fully understand everything about this calling. And yet he obeyed God, even though he couldn't fully grasp all those details, he didn't fully understand the commands and promises. See, faith obeys even when it's hard. Faith obeys when it does not understand God's commands. And that's what the scripture says, when he was called to go out. Let's go back and look at that calling in Genesis for a little bit more uh, clarity. Genesis chapter 12, please. Genesis 12. And verse 1, here's the calling. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Look at verse 4. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old, when he departed out of Haran. Seventy and five years old. This is the call of Abraham. And he's in Haran. He had been in Ur of the Chaldees. That's way down uh, on the Euphrates River, almost down to the Persian Gulf. And he had been down there. He had moved up to, to Haran earlier when his father had moved. Look back in chapter 11, verse 31. It tells us Terah, that's Abram's uh, father, 
And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur the Chaldees to go into the land of, notice, Canaan. So they were heading that way, and they came unto Haran and dwelt there. So for whatever reason, uh, Terah heads out of Ur. He says, we're going to Canaan. That's the direction that's west from, from there. But they only got as far as Haran, and then they got stuck, or they stopped, or were not told. But here the Lord comes to him and he says, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And so he came in, which was his original direction. But it's clear that Abraham didn't know or understand all the details, even if he had a general direction of where he was going. And you know, that's an amazing fact to me. I've already pointed out the fact that Abraham is 75 years old at this point. And at 75, okay, some of you are already there or um, have passed that. But at 75, he picked up all of his belongings, his entire family, and he moved. He had no children yet, though. God said that he would give him a land for his descendants. And as one man, who's 75 years old, with just a small company of, of people in his, what would be called a family, his servants and so on, he was hardly in a position to fight and conquer the cities in this land, which was going to be Canaan. Now, do you think that Abraham was full of questions? I would have been full of questions. I would have been trying to figure out all along what God meant and how he was going to do it. You know? God doesn't always tell us all the details. Sometimes it's beyond our abilities to understand the details. So he doesn't tell us. Sometimes I think if he told us the details, we wouldn't go. And so he doesn't tell us that in mercy, so that we'll obey. But God doesn't tell us everything. Now, to be honest, this, this really strikes home with me right now in my life. For the last two years, my family and I have been trying to follow God, but frankly, uh, I cannot understand what he is doing. That's just the honest truth. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't understand why we had to step out of the ministry full-time. I don't understand why he hasn't healed my wife. I don't understand why we can't seem to find affordable housing, besides the fact that the market just has gone ridiculous. Whenever I think that I figured it out, oh, this must be the reason this delay has happened. God throws another curveball in there, and I go, oh, that wasn't it. See, see, so I can understand with Abraham. I can relate to him right now in my life, particularly, because I'm on one of those journeys where I don't know whither I'm going. I don't understand. And you know something? I have a feeling that some of you sitting here tonight feel the same way about your circumstances. Maybe God has called upon you to endure a trial that you don't understand one for which you cannot yet see any purpose. Or perhaps you're in a troubled marriage, 
and you don't understand why God asks you to remain in it. Or maybe God is calling you to go to the mission field, but you don't understand how that would all work out. Or perhaps your struggle is with the clear commands of Scripture. You know, flee fornication, love not the world, deny self. You don't understand how those commands can be good because they go contrary to your fleshly desires. I remember counseling a young woman in my church that she should not marry an unsaved man, the man she was engaged to. I told her the command of God, but she insisted on marrying him because, as she said, she loved him and she believed that her feelings were telling her that it was okay. You see, folks, if you live by your feelings rather than by faith, you will not be obedient to God's commands. Because your feelings will oftentimes tell you, uh, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand this. Therefore, you, you shouldn't do that. It isn't always easy to obey God because we're going against the flesh. We're going against the world and we're definitely going against the devil. But faith, faith in God and that God is right and that what he says is true, that's what will keep you on this straight and narrow. That's what will keep you obedient even when you don't fully understand. You see, faith obeys when it does not understand God's commands. But faith also obeys when it doesn't understand God's promises. And that was the case with Abraham too. The scripture says that he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance. Look again in Genesis chapter 12 verse 2. This is the promise. So the command is in verse 1, go. The promise in verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Drop down to verse 6. And Abram passed through the land into the place of Sikkim, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, look at this, unto thy seed will I give this land, Canaan. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. That was the way that Abraham showed his faith. That was the way that he showed that he believed the promise. I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to worship God. He just told me he was going to give me this land and my descendants. But think about that, folks. That, that verse 6, it ends with that passing comment. The King James makes it one sentence. And the Canaanite was then in the land. It almost seems like a passing comment, like it's an unnecessary detail that's in there. No, that's a necessary detail. You see, because what it tells us is that Abraham is now living in a land that's been promised to him, but he doesn't own it. He doesn't control it. It's right now under the domination of the Canaanites. Now, Abram's not strong enough to drive them out. 
In fact, he doesn't even have any children right now, though God said, I'm going to give it to your descendants. Do you think Abraham understood all of God's promises? Do you think he could have explained it to one of his relatives in Ur or to one of the, the Canaanites in the land of promise? I don't think so. But he believed. Now, folks, God has given to us many promises in the Scriptures. Do you believe them? I'm sure you do. But can you always explain them and understand them? Take eternal life. A promise that God has provided to us. And yet, as I mentioned last week, we die. We go to funerals. We had one here on Monday. People who have loved God and served them, they die too. Death is a reality yet. Or forgiveness from sin. And yet, if you're like me, <laughs> the devil comes along sometimes with his doubts. He tries to get you to think otherwise or to believe otherwise about the forgiveness of God. A home in heaven is another one of those promises, and yet the atheists mock us for believing in the afterlife and the heaven, the rapture of the church. But then there are those scorners that question Christ's coming. Peter told us that they would be there. In the last days, there'll be, there'll be scoffers. Where's the promise of his coming? With the inerrant scriptures, we believe that God has provided the scriptures to us, that they're inerrant, no mistakes. And then you're watching the news and they come on and they say, new evidence proves that the Bible's false. Or God, we know, we have the promise that God is all wise, all good, all powerful, and yet tragedy strikes. And your unsaved co-workers come to you and they say to you, well, if your God is good, or if he's all-powerful, or if he's loving. Why does he allow this to happen? My point is, folks, that God has given us promises, but we don't always understand all the details, and we can't always explain them to the lost or to the world. We believe them. It's our faith that we put into what God has said, and we take him at his word. This is the way Abraham was, in a land that didn't look like it was going to be his. But he was clinging to the promises of God. You know, we have no problem believing the promises of God when the skies are bright and cloudless. It's when the troubles come and the trials fall upon us that, that our faith is tested. And it's then... that faith is determined to be true or not. I think of those ships from a couple centuries ago, you know, those old wooden ships. And, uh, and it's fine when, when the sky is sunny and there's a nice breeze, all the sailors just walk around easily on the deck. But when the storm hits 
and the ship is tossing like this and the waves are coming up, those sailors are clinging to anything to hold on to so they don't get thrown overboard. And that's the way it is with you and me. When the trials come, folks, when the clouds arise and the storms blow, we cling. We cling to the promises of God even when you don't understand. You know, many times God's promises seem to be risky <laughs> from our limited knowledge perspective. But we must venture on faith. And when we do, we find out that the promises of God are certain. Faith obeys God, even when it's hard. It obeys when it does not understand. It also obeys when the reward is slow in coming. The reward is slow in coming. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land. That's one of those King James words. It means to dwell beside. The idea is to live as a foreigner. Okay, that's why it goes on to say, as in a strange country. He's living as a foreigner. Do you realize that Abraham never saw the fulfillment of the promise? At least not all of it. He lived as a foreigner in a land that was supposed to be his, but never was. He never owned any of it. When his wife died, he did not own any land in Canaan. He had to buy a burial plot for her. Genesis chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner. See, there he is. He confesses it with you. Give me a possession of the burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And that was the only piece of land that he really ever owned in the land of Canaan. It wasn't just Abraham. Look at what it goes on to say. He sojourned in a land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So not only did Abraham not experience the fulfillment of the promise, but Isaac and Jacob didn't either. They were heirs of the promise, but it wasn't fulfilled in their lifetimes. In fact, Jacob ended his life in Egypt with all of his sons, which made the promise of God look like it had failed. So there's no question, folks, that this promise, this reward was slow in coming. <laughs> Very slow. Abraham didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. Jacob didn't see it. In fact, it was several hundred years later before the descendants of Abraham inhabited the land. What do you do when the reward is slow in coming? You know, to keep on praying when your prayers aren't being answered, to keep on obeying when it just causes you more problems. To keep on serving the Lord when you don't see any fruit. To keep on striving for holiness when it only produces more temptations. 
What do you do? The energy to keep on going. We can learn from Abraham. You cling to the promise. That's what you do. You cling to the promise. It says he sojourned in the land of promise. Promise. He clung to the promise even when it didn't look hopeful. Uh, if you still got your finger in Genesis, go back there again to chapter 15 this time. Even if you didn't have your finger in Genesis, you can find it fast. Genesis chapter 15, look at what it says in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? See, so he doesn't understand, he doesn't know. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. So in other words, at that point, his heir was Eliezer of Damascus, who was his steward. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, that's Abraham, believed in the Lord. And he, that's God, counted it to him for righteousness. So here he is. He brings him outside. And he looks, says, look up at the stars. And he says, your descendants will be as numerous as those. And all Abraham could do is believe. There's nothing he could do about it. In fact, we find out in the next chapter he tried to do something about it and he just made a big muddle of things. He goes into Hagar and he has a child through her and that just brought about Ishmael and that was a big mess. What should he have done? He should have just clung to what, clung to what God said. Believe. This is the promise. I'm going to give you a child from your own uh, body, from your bowels, and he is going to be the child of promise. You know, it isn't easy just clinging to promises, but sometimes that's all we can do. You just hold on to it. And when things don't look like it's working, you just hold on to it again. And this is exactly what Abraham's doing. In fact, he's doing more than that. The scripture says in Hebrews 11, he's dwelling in tabernacles or tents. The word dwelling means to be at home. Abraham was at home in tents. How do you like that? You know that speaks of contentment to me? To be at home in a tent? In chapter 13 of Genesis, we have the story recorded of the separation of Abraham and Lot. So they're flocks had grown to too large and they had to separate and go their way and uh, Abraham and Lot get together and they talk he said Abraham who's the elder he's the uncle he says to Lot now look Lot you pick if you go one way I'll go the other way but it's your choice 
And the Bible says that Lot looked down into the valley of Sodom and it was well watered everywhere and it was green and it was the best land and Lot said, I'll go there. And you want to know what? Abraham said, that's fine. I'll go that way. Lot makes his decision on the basis of his greed. Abraham is totally content with that. This is a man of faith who's clinging to the promise of God. Now, of course, as the story plays out, Lot made a bad choice, and he ended up in Sodom, and that ended up in disaster. In the meantime, God continues to bless Abraham. But folks, Abraham wanted God, not money. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 tells us, Let your conversation or your lifestyle, your way of life, be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I've always thought that was an interesting combination there. Be content with what you've got. Whether you're living in a two-bedroom rancher or a five-bedroom, five-bath mansion, or whether you're living in a tent. <laughs> Be content with what you have. Because, why? God says, I'm with you. If we could be content with God, we could be content. Are you content with what God has given you in your life? Or do you find yourself coveting something else? a better job, a better marriage, a better church, a better bank account. That'd be a bigger one, right? Better health. Do you realize, folks, that there will always, there will always be something that the Lord will withhold from you in order to make you dependent on him? Cling to the promises of God in faith. You will not find your happiness in those things anyway. You're going to find your happiness and your contentment in God. So what do you do? You cling to God. When the reward is slow in coming, you cling to the promises, and then you focus on eternity. Look again in that verse in, uh, it's verse 10 of Hebrews 11. And actually, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire chapter. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The word looked means to wait expectantly. He's waiting expectantly. In fact, the same word is used in John 5, 3, for example. Uh, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. So there it is. Uh, they're, standing on the, they're sitting along the side of the pool and they're waiting for the angel to come down and stir up the water. They're waiting for it. That's not just a casual waiting. That's expectant. They're watching to see when the angel, because it was the first one that got in that got healed. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman, or the farmer, waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it. The farmer who's waiting 
eagerly to partake of the crops. And this is the kind of waiting that Abraham, in faith, Abraham waited expectantly. But I want you to notice that his focus, his long patience, we could say, was not on the fulfillment of the promise. It wasn't on inheriting the land or the receiving of the son even. Ultimately, he says that his focus was on heaven. It was on eternity. So he gladly lived in tents because he patiently waited and kept his focus on the eternal city, a city that had foundations, unlike tents. Foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's the craftsman, the constructor. And God is the one who's doing it. Do you understand, folks? God has designed heaven and he is building it for you. With you in mind. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, it says, The king shall say unto them on the right hand, they're the sheep, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now think about that. A home is being prepared for you that has eternal foundations and is being designed and built by God himself. Do you know what that means? It means that it's going to be perfect. It means that it's going to last forever. When my wife and I went through our house fire many, many years ago, some of you were here at the time when Remember that being mentioned as a prayer request. It was the church parsonage. So uh, the church pretty much gave us, within a certain parameter, <laughs> uh, free liberty to design the house ourselves. My wife loves to do that kind of stuff, so she was just thrilled. We designed a home that, that we loved, and uh, uh, then God gave us the opportunity to live in it for another 15 years. But you know, after a couple years, we said, oh, if we had this to do over again, uh, <laughs> we'd have done this. I, I sound like some of you have done the same thing, right? Even if you design your own house, you still do something wrong. For all of eternity, you will never say that about heaven. Heaven will be perfect, and it will be eternal. Listen, my friends, when the reward is slow in coming, answered prayer, victory over sin, fruit in ministry, you name it, whatever it is, when the reward is slow in coming, you be patient, and by faith you keep your focus on heaven. Because you see, folks, God is preparing you a better place now, if you must wander about in tents, which is a less than ideal circumstances, especially if you're living in Pennsylvania, if you have to wander about in tents in this life, you know, that's okay. Because God is building you a permanent place in heaven. If you have to live in constant pain, that's okay. Because God is going to give you a pain-free body someday. And if you have to struggle all your life here on earth 
with whatever it is that's that constant struggle for you, listen, that's okay, because God is designing a place for you of perfect rest. So when you're tempted to lose heart, look up. Look to God. Look to eternity. When the reward is slow in coming, what does your faith need to do? It needs to focus on eternity. Faith obeys God, even when it's hard, even when you don't understand, even when the reward is slow in coming. Faith obeys God. William Carey was called of God to go to India. He's called the father of modern missions because he was really the one who in the 1700s kicked off the the missionary movement that we understand today with sending, sending churches and um, mission teams and boards and so on, the process that we use. Called of God to go to India in the 1700s, he and his family, though, met many hardships on the way. If you know his life, you know that obedience to God cost him the comforts of England, one of his sons, and the sanity of his wife. He spent 35 years as a missionary with very few converts. Many would have been discouraged and given up, but Carey was a plotter, as he called himself. He was a man of faith who just kept obeying God even though it was hard. Why? Because he had a focus on eternity. And as a result, he succeeded in translating the Bible into 30-some dialects in India, and he laid the groundwork for future missions work in India. Almost all missions work in India today really is built on the foundation that William Carey laid. Amen. You see, folks, faith keeps plotting. It keeps obeying even when it's hard. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for the life of Abraham. I never read of his life without being convicted myself, Father. A man with all the frailties just like we have, like I have, and yet he was a man who, who believed, took you at his word, at your word, and obeyed. Thank you for this lesson in faith in technicolor for us. It helps us to relate to what we need to do in our life circumstances. Now, Father, I, I pray for those who are here tonight, and I pray especially because although I don't know all the circumstances and the hearts of the people who are here, I believe, Father, that this is the message you wanted tonight because there are some who are here who are struggling with obedience to God. 
because it's been hard. Father, I pray that the truths that we see in Abraham's life would be those that they would also employ in their own and hold on to as they realize that they too can look for a city whose builder and maker is God. It's not all about this life. There's another one to come that is perfect. And so it's worth it to obey now and to have faith now and to hold on now. Oh, Lord, give us all that dedication and that zeal. Even when we don't understand, give us the determination to do right and to follow you. Bless us as we go from this place and use us in your, in your service to reach people for the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.